are almost done with our study, and we don't come back till January 3rd after next week. I don't know about you, but I almost got my Christmas shopping done. Anyone else? Is, does, is anyone like, are you guys all like the last minute shopper? You do. There's more discounts that way. Exactly. Well, would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6? I'm calling this message. I got two two names to call it. I'm going to call it under new management <clears throat> or out with the old in with the new. And if you will with me <clears throat> look at Romans 6:16 and together we're going to say our memory verse. <clears throat> Here we go, Romans 6.16, this week's memory verse. Let's all say it together. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Well, last week, ladies, Michelle showed us in Romans verses 1 through 14, we are, this chapter is divided by two lessons that the Apostle Paul has labored to get the point across that where sin increases, God's grace increased even more. Paul continues to go on to say that in order for us believers to live our lives out from under the control of sin, we must reckon ourselves dead to sin but alive in Christ. We must stop presenting ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, that sentence alone, to me, kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like, just the thought of God looking upon me and saying, yeah, you're presenting yourself as unrighteous. To me, that, that just, that just, I quench at that thought. But we should continue to present ourselves to God as instruments of his righteousness, and here's the reason why. Romans 6.14, we ended last week. Sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. We also see the difference between justification and sanctification. Two words from the Bible that we ought to cozy up to and get very acquainted with. Justification and sanctification, they merge together. They're married together. They can't be separated. Now, identification with Christ for justification is the grounds of our sanctification. And this is going to get a little deep, so hold on. Follow me, if you will. I believe everyone in this room, we've gone through Acts. We're past the stage of milk. We're ready for the meat of God's word. So here we go. So bear with me. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. Justification took place the moment you trusted Christ. Our choice to serve Jesus is an act. That's our act. You were declared righteous. The guilt of our past sin 
life was forever removed. Then God began a work in you that will continue throughout your life. Sanctification is a continued process. Look at justification. Look at it as justification is your gate of salvation. Entering into the gates of salvation when you accept Jesus. Justification is your entrance. Salvation, the door coming in. Sanctification is your residence. So right now, our residence in sanctification is eternal life. So you're in escrow right now. You purchased it. You accepted Christ. You're in escrow. So we just need to make sure we don't fall out of escrow. Sanctification is residing in Jesus, growing in God's word, walking with the Holy Spirit, guiding you. If you're in Christ, you're in the fullness of his word. His Holy Spirit indwells within you a new creation. Sanctification is a lifetime process. It is work in progress. It's every day. Justification is the means. Sanctification is the end. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and the power of sin. Another word is positional sanctification. Relates to the fact that the believer has been redeemed and cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven all of our sins and placed in a new relationship to God. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Just once and for all. Positional sanctification is true of every believer. We have once and for all been set apart for God. This is why we are called saints. Because that is what we are in God's sight. We have been sanctified and are holy before God. We are accepted in the Beloved. Positional sanctification is also called our standing with God or status, status, status sanctification. We are called saints and sanctified in Jesus Christ, Romans 1.7. It is status, it is position or relationship with God. All believers are classified as the saints, Acts 20, 1 Corinthians, Hebrews, and Jude. I can give you those scriptures later if you want to look at those. Therefore, sainthood or sanctification is not an attainment. It is the state into which God, in grace, calls sinful men and in which we begin our course as Christian, as Christian women. (laughs) Sanctify means set apart for God's exclusive use. Our sanctification is past, present, and future. We have been sanctified. We are being sanctified, and we shall be sanctified. These are the three aspects speak of our positional sanctification that's found in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews. I read it like this in J. Vernon McGee, one of my favorite commentators. God is both an interior and an exterior decorator. 
he is exterior in that he enables us to stand before him because he has paid the penalty, removed the guilt of sin from us. But he is also an interior decorator. He moves into our hearts and lives by the power of the Holy Spirit to make us the kind of Christians we should be. God does not leave us in sin when he saves us from it. So we ended last week with Romans 6.14. Sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. The law was put in place to protect the people to keep them on the right path. Like a set of rules. Same thing today. We have a set of rules. Everything we do. Well, the rules, you know, in today's society, there are no rules. But at our jobs, we have rules. In our houses, we have rules. Driving our car, we have rules of the road. And as my kids were growing up, the rumor was in our house that I was the meanest mom on the mountain. (laughs) That Mario and I never let our kids do anything according to them. We We would remind our kids that it's not that we don't let you do anything. We don't let you do everything. It's a big difference. Know the rules, K-N-O-W, and everyone is happy. I remember always telling my kids different families have different rules, and your rules follow you when you go to someone else's house. It became difficult when we would later hear about something that was done because the rules were different. My kids thought they had freedom if mom and dad did not know that the rules in this house are not their rules, that they had a lot of freedom. My kids thought if mom didn't find out, which always resulted in no longer going back to that friend's house. I'm sorry. Those are the rules. Which now my kids look back and they are grateful that we did have the rules because those friends have taken a turn not in a good direction. Although my friends, my Kids keep friends with them, but they pray for them also. But rules are rules. And of course, with all parenting, we start out with the first child with what? The strictest of all the rules. I don't know if you're a first child, Belinda. Nope. So the first child gets the strictest rules. The middle child gets kind of strictest rules. I'm a middle child. But what happens to the third child? They either get away with everything or they figured out by watching how to get around the rules. <laughs> the rules appear much stricter to the first child than more accepting to the second child. And by the third child, the rules do not have to be repeated because that's all they know. That's all they know. It's a given. Same thing with our walk. At the beginning of our walk, we're rebellious. A godly life is foreign to us, but the Holy Spirit is there to guide us, to teach us, to comfort us, and we become accepting of our new reality in Christ to the point of maturity where... We yearn, not only just yearn, but we yearn for his righteousness in our lives. As one receives 
a warm blanket on a cold night. So let's now continue on part two in our Roman study, chapter six. But I want to read to you all of Romans chapter six in the message translation because for context purpose, I found it very hard to split Romans chapter six and this jumping in right in on chapter on verse 15. So I'm going to read it to you in the message translation and then we're going to go through verses 15 through 23 together. So if you don't have the message translation, um, I'm going to read it for you. So starting with Romans 6, verse 1. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in a new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks the dead language. That means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So, since we've out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourselves in the way of God, and the freedom never quits. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do, but thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. 
I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom? Your lives healed and expansive in holiness. As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living, or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found, you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise, a whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus our Master. Okay, so let's go back and look at 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Paul is saying the law does not justify us or help us overcome sin. But now that we are bound to Christ, he is our master, and he gives us power to do good and overcome the desire sin has over us. We can say, easier said than done. I can look at some women, I can look at some of you women, and I can say, wow, she just doesn't have any problems at all. But I don't know the problems that she struggles with. You don't know the problems that I struggle with. We are all struggling with something. It is virtually impossible to overcome sin on our own strength. But once we have repented, and received Christ as our Lord and Savior and fully surrender to him. It is through his strength that we can overcome the desire of sin. So if we struggle with gossip, ask God to shut our mouth in love. If we struggle with jealousy, ask God to give you love for that person. If we struggle with self-righteousness, thinking we're better than others, ask God to humble you. If you struggle in your relationship with your spouse, ask God to give you counsel. I know a woman, nobody in this room, who refused to give up the driver's seat in their marriage. Therefore, they always, they're always mad. Therefore, she's always mad at her husband for not taking the lead. Well, he can't lead if you're in the driver's seat, I told her. And when she gave up the driver's seat, she became the backseat driver, which was worse. What ended up happening was she needed to get out of the car completely so that God could show her husband how to drive, so that God could show him how to lead. By getting out of the car, her husband, by his own choice, asked God for help. Now their marriage is right where God had designed it to be from the beginning. So if you struggle, and we all are struggling with something, 
There's not one of us in this room that are not struggling with something. Ask God to remove it. And he will be faithful and he will. Verse 16 through 18. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. The thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Okay. All humanity serves under one type of slavery or the other. In reading our study, we learn that the church in Rome, that 50% of the congregation were either slaves or were previously slaves and they had been set free. Paul is using this analogy of slavery to illustrate to the congregation which they would have easily understood. Two types of slavery which still exist today. Slave to sin, which leads to death, or slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. I just gave the answer to question one. (laughs) Matthew 6, Jesus tells us, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. So getting back to the slaves, remember there was no social security or welfare program back in the days. To a lot of people needing protection, job or money, they would offer themselves up as what? Remember, a bond servant. Because they needed protection, they needed money. They were willing slaves. Very common. The story of Jacob, bond servant towards Jethro. He worked for Jethro, his father-in-law, future father-in-law. So he's willingly. So in the church in Rome, we see um, slaves that Paul was talking to, and so they could totally understand where he's coming from. So story, personal story on my end. Ten years now, I've given up the occasional glass of wine. I was perfectly okay with having a glass of wine at dinner, going out to parties, or going on vacation. And also, I was involved in ministry. I, I wasn't getting drunk. I thought having a glass of wine calmed me down from having three back-to-back-to-back kids. On vacation, I was teaching Sunday school. I was in women's Bible study, just starting to get involved in women's Bible study at this point. I was a co-leader. So one time we're in Mexico on vacation, and I was enjoying a nice glass of Chardonnay poolside. When suddenly I caught the eye of my youngest child looking at me, staring at me, It ran through my mind. She's thinking, yep, that's my mom, drinking a glass of wine. And all of a sudden, I got this cold chill over me. And the words saying in my mind, I can't, I won't use you in ministry, in any ministry, in my ministry, unless I have all of you. And that night I prayed and asked God to remove the desire 100%. And not only did he remove it 100%, he related 
the taste of wine to motion sickness. And some of you in this room know that I suffer from motion sickness since I was a little girl. I cannot come up the mountain without pulling off to the side. Jennifer knows that. Um, coming home from a retreat, it gets really bad. And so when I do go down the hill, it's one or two times a week. But I'm, when I come up the hill, I'm done. I feel like I got off a, a circus ride. So not only did God take away the desire of the occasional glass of wine, he related it to me as something so horrifying that when I hit Highland Avenue and I know I'm going home and I know it takes me 13 minutes to get to my door, I my hands are gripped because I know I am going to get so sick and I'm going to get so dizzy. And it's a miracle that I can make it up the hill by myself to the point where my husband doesn't want me going up and down the hill anymore unless I have someone with me. Or I text him, okay, I'm leaving, and I made it home. It can get really bad. <clears throat> so God took that away, but he related it to me so bad that I would never, ever want to have the desire to ever, ever go back and try that. And so I like to say at that moment, yes, I went cold turkey, and yes, I went under new management. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us how he did everything under the sun. And at the end of the day, it was all vanity. It was meaningless. It was empty. It was death. If you're here this morning and something has a hold on you, until you see it as meaningless, until you see it as emptiness and death, you have not fully surrendered. Fully surrender and be free and ask him to remove it, and he will. There is no middle ground Verses 19 through 22 tells us it is impossible to be neutral. A Christian is not someone who cannot sin, but someone who is no longer a slave to sin. A slave to sin is allowing sin to control your life. But that's a choice, ladies. It's a choice. Verse 21 says, What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are free to choose between two masters. But we are not free to adjust the consequences of your choice. Each of the two masters pay with his own kind of currency. The currency of death or the currency of eternal life. The devil is the paymaster and he will make sure that you get paid if you work for him. God is the paymaster and he will make sure you get paid if you work for him. It is impossible to be a slave to sin and not realize it. Come on, ladies. We know, our heart knows But the gift of God is eternal life, and you will receive it by faith. So the question I want to ask you this morning and for myself is, what currency do you have in your wallet right now? Are you good? Or do we need to go to the currency exchange counter? Paul is telling us to remember who you are. You're children of the Most High. Be enslaved to righteousness, and not be enslaved to sin. We are saved by faith. 
We are to live by faith. We are to walk moment by moment in faith. We cannot live for God by ourself any more than we can save ourselves. It requires constant dependence upon him, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of the cross, he paid our debt. And because of the, his blood, our sins are washed away forever. And I want you to picture the cross right now. When Jesus' arms were stretched out, that's where your sin is. They are gone forever. They are stretched out. He cannot grab them back. So we are not to grab them back. If you are towing behind you, your old life, pray and ask God to unhitch that trailer. Or if you have cute suitcases and they're filled with old luggage and old stuff, drop them and leave them at the counter. You are a new creation in Christ. By faith, you you are justified and you are sanctified. Amen? Amen.